From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg. Grab a stool and come gather round the fire. There are stories to be told and you are among friends. Happy Canada Day. 152 years young. Uh, the boys and I stocked up on fireworks earlier today and tomorrow... Around sundown, we'll head over to a, a park very close to our house and celebrate this great country's birthday in style. Uh, and in just a few uh, days from now, another birthday, the United States of America will turn 243. So they have a few years on us. Two friendly neighbors living in peace, both strong and free and prosperous. Now that's worth celebrating. Owen Wolf is my technical producer. Ryan White is the live stream producer and we are streaming live on the YouTube channel Strange Planet. Before we dive into our uh, two-hour discussion on secret societies, it's time for our monthly draw for Strange Planet merchandise awarded to one of my Patreon supporters. And this month's winner of my uh, CD collection of Strange Planet, my radio feature, Volume 2, is Karen of Loma Linda, California. Congrats, Karen. I'll put that CD in the post this week. Now, if you want to become eligible for the monthly draw or eligible for exclusive monthly online chats and video hangouts on air with me, go to patreon.com forward slash strange planet and consider becoming an official supporter. Tonight, an author, lecturer, and professor of history joins me to delve into secret societies. Over the course of the next two hours, he'll discuss the nine different types of secret societies and how these groups transmit secret messages through the media using coded texts and pictures. A secret society is a society whose membership, proceedings, or teachings are secret concealed from non-members or otherwise not open to the general public. Secret societies typically accept new members only by initiation rituals, which frequently bind the initiate by various oaths not to reveal the secrets of the society to non-members. The initiations are sometimes multiplied so that there are a variety or degrees or additional credentials that the members can achieve or progress through. These may take the form of an inner circle or group of adepts or the elect, sharing further secrets that are not communicated to other members. Secret handshakes, passwords, and other symbols are taught to the initiates to enable them to be recognized by others without giving away the secret. Mark Mirabello is an author and a professor of history at Shawnee State University. He served as a visiting professor of history at Nizhny Novgorod University in Russia. He's appeared on the History Channel discussing deadly cults in the series called Ancient Aliens and in America's Book of Secrets. And he's appeared with Professor Noam Chomsky in M.A. Littler's Maverick film on freedom, The Kingdom of Survival. 
Mark's area of expertise and is the outlaw history on the frontiers and margins of human civilization. He lectures on death and afterlife concepts, alternative religions and cults, secret societies, terrorism and crime, banned books, fascist Europe and Nazi Germany, myths and legends, intellectual history and other subjects. Mark has a PhD from the University of Glasgow, Scotland and an NMA from the University of Virginia. He is the author of A Traveler's Guide to the Afterlife, Traditions and Beliefs on Death, Dying, and What Lies Beneath, Handbook for Rebels and Outlaws, Resisting Tyrants, Hangmen, and Priests, The Odin Brotherhood, and his latest project, as yet unpublished, is Secret Societies and Conspiracies. That's the working title. A great pleasure to welcome Mark Mirabello to The Conspiracy Show. Hey, Mark, how are you? Well, thank you for the wonderful introduction. By the way, right off the top, I want to thank Mark Eddy for making this possible. Also, could I say, uh, I always love radio as a historian because our voices are now traveling at the speed of light into space, and I like to, historians always like immortality. I like to imagine that someday, centuries from now, some alien will tune in and hear what we have to say. Kind of a little fantasy there. And also, <laughs> happy Canada Day. Uh, by the yes, way, which reminds me, too, because one of the things we'll be talking about is how history, official history, is altered. And uh, very few Americans realize that um, America actually attacked Canada twice, once during the Revolution, one during the, once during the War of 1812, and we were repulsed both times. That tends to be obscured in our history texts. Another point uh-huh. they tend to obscure, if the Americans had lost the Revolution... Uh, slaves would have been freed in the 1830s instead of the 1860s. So in some respects, it was a mistake. I sound like H.P. Lovecraft, the horror writer. He's, he used to regret that the Americans lost the revolution. But uh, Canada turned out all right. Uh, there were 18 North American colonies. Five did not revolt, and you fellows up there did a good job. So again, thank <laughs> you for the opportunity. <laughs> again, a real well. pleasure to be here. My, my pleasure. Uh, a comedian, uh, lawyer friend of mine, uh, an acquaintance, I should say. It's been many years since I've seen him, but he, he summed up the difference between America and Canada this way. Uh, you shot your parents and we still send money home. <laughs> uh, that reminds me too of the late Robin Williams, the comic who sadly uh, died. He once described, I heard him live, or at least on a program, saying that uh, he described Canada as a really, really, really nice family living am- uh, above a biker bar. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, I love our neighbors to the south. They're our cousins, really. Uh, yeah. Speaking of, um, you know, conspiracies and, and uh, um, secret societies, obviously this is an area that's just ripe with speculation. Uh, you know, it's very difficult to find a particular document or the smoking gun and so forth. But you, you say that when you're teaching this material in a class or when you're discussing it on the radio as tonight, your approach is you deal in beliefs rather than facts, because usually people like to say it's the other way around. But you've kind of turned that around. Just explain that a little bit. It's beliefs, not facts that you deal in. Yes, in our, in our earlier email communication, I mentioned there was this Chinese leader, Hong Zai uh, Quinn. He lived in the 19th century, and he believed that he was actually the younger brother of Jesus, the Messiah. 
And uh, most Westerners would reject this. I mean, the Professor Ferguson referred to it as he was teaching a mutated form of Christianity. But whether or not that was true or false, as many as 70 million people died in the war that this caused in China, uh, mostly because a lot of Westerners got involved, as well as the Japanese, which is why so many died in the 19th century. So something doesn't have to be true to have enormous influence on human race and on history. And in fact, you mentioned that um, in the introduction that I teach a course on myths and legends. And uh, I point out that actually a lot of what we teach and even ac other academic disciplines are actually myths. For example, uh, Professor Hidalgo, who's an economist, is an economist, pointed out that uh, realize every time we have these, these uh, the economy has to keep growing and they'll say, it's stagnant if we're in a recession or it's a depression or we're booming. Endless growth is a ridiculous concept. It cannot go on forever. In fact, historians estimate that the economies really didn't start to grow to, uh, for most of human history until about 1800 because of the Industrial Revolution altered and create these huge chasms between uh, the third world and the developed world. In fact, the standard of a living in Africa in 1750 was roughly what it was in England in 1750. And we forget this. And in fact, the modern economies have created this notion of endless growth, which is impossible. And by the way, regarding ethnic economic myths as well, we try to bring the world up to this first world standard. Uh, United, if everyone on planet Earth lived at American standard of living, we would need three planets the size of planet Earth because we consume resources in such a really incredible way. And so, again, mythology is found all over the place. And this is why reputable historians tend to shy away from secret societies, uh, because they're trying to prove like what really happened. Uh, is The Freemasons have the core legend of the murder of Hiram by three ruffians. And a modern historian will say, well, that probably didn't happen during the construction of the Temple of Solomon. Um, and by the way, for the record, if you look at modern archaeology, we're not certain there really was, this would sound odd, a Temple of Solomon. There was in later times, time of Jesus, there was the temple there. In fact, Herod expanded it. Right, and the second was, temple, which was destroyed by the Romans. Yes, yes. And by the way, most Christians don't realize when they go there and look at it and, and pray they're looking at something that was built by Herod, who actually thought he was the Messiah. This is often airbrushed out of history books, because he was of the line of David. And the idea of the Jewish Messiah is that someone from the line of David would become king of Israel. And he was a flunky of the Romans, but he was king, line right. of David. So that story of the massacre of the innocents in the Gospels, that's actually probably happened, because he thought these were people challenging uh, so again, uh, the first temple probably was maybe some little structure. Um, in later retellings, it's this uh, uh, sort of impressive structure made out of stone. And by the way, it's interesting there, too, because this ties into Freemasonry. No iron was used in the construction of the temple. Yes, we'll, we'll talk about why that was, because that's... Yeah, but we'll continue. Yeah, I was going to pursue that a little bit later, but since you're on the subject, okay. what is it about is what is it about not using iron in 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 Masonic rituals? Well, we also find this in skull and bones. 
they're not supposed to have any metal on them during the initiation. That's the infamous, if I may call it that, Yale Secret Society. Uh, oddly enough, we find it in other contexts. There's a religion probably better known in Canada and in France than in the United States, the Raelian Movement, which yes. claims contact with extraterrestrials. And uh, uh, Rael, who's the person who claimed he had the contact, um, he said that after his first contact with, he claimed Yahweh, who was actually an extraterrestrial, he was told to return the next day and in future times without having any metal. Now, we find this idea, metal is taboo in traditional religions. Uh, it's a really widespread notion, and uh, Professor Eliade, the great religious historian, refers to it, and he thinks, Eliade thought it's probably true, uh, at least a good guess, um, that um, it represented new and curious technology. And, and typically, uh, traditional peoples are conservative, and something that's new is frightening. And uh, the Greeks had a legend. They first learned how to work metals when there was a great volcanic eruption, and they saw liquefied metals running down um, the side of a mountain. Which reminds me, I remember when I was in grade school, there was a house down the street that burned. It had aluminum siding on it. And I remember as a sixth grader watching the aluminum melt and run down the side of the house, which mm-hmm. when you're a sixth grade boy, that's really cool. <laughs> sure. You know, now, sure. I, now I'd be alarmed by it. But, um, and there's this core, and incidentally, it's also a widespread notion that uh, metal workers, the smiths, if you will, are a fearsome but respected occupation. And they're often lame in the legends, like Hephaestus in Greek. Right, world. right. Yes. Um, and we think they were probably intentionally la- uh, disabled. They had their legs uh, injured um, because they had such a valuable craft. And incidentally, in Japanese tradition, among the samurai, a maker of a excellent sword is superior to a samurai fighter. Uh, usually, for example, in medieval France, the craftsman would be rated below the knight. The warrior, so it right. shows this this power. Um, now, again, as I said, because your original question, I don't mean to, to make a circle here, uh, but you can see how uh, it gets really vague. If we try, too many historians do this. They try to establish what is really happened in the past, and that serves a value. But you know, we have this current phrase, "false news." I don't know why they're using this because almost everything you're hearing. Typically, for hundreds of years, and reading is falsified at some level. Um, speaking of which, uh, reminds me because we're talking Canada earlier. King Alfred plan. I bet a lot of people haven't heard of that. It's a conspiracy theory, and frankly, it has secret society connotations. I don't know if you've heard this one. It's quite obscure. That the uh, you know we're talking now about global warming. Well, the King Alfred plan, which dates back to the 1960s, claimed that it's, it circulates mainly among American, African Americans, that the Europe, United States, and Japan have known for years that the ice age is returning. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. We're not warming. We're going back to an ice age. And that Canada, most of the United States, most of Europe, Russia, and, of course, Japan will be under a couple thousand feet of ice. And that the uh, so-called first world 
is selectively exterminating people at the equator. Those would be the only areas we could move to, uh, roughly the equator, and what, that we're intentionally spreading uh, economic disruption, AIDS, Ebola disease, and so on and so forth. So, sorry, I tend to... Uh, Sorry for the verbal diarrhea here. That's all right. I just uh, want to go back to a, a lot of things happening here. I want to just pick up on a few threads. And one of them was just going back to the iron workers and how uh, the metal workers and how they were uh, so skilled and so valued that they they deliberately maimed them. Was that the idea? So they couldn't run away? They couldn't leave? Is that yes. the idea? Yes. Uh, keep That's them uh, captive. Um, by the way, we often find that a um, valuable servile race is or group of people, I'm using race in the 19th century, not like color, uh, is intentionally disabled. Um, the Scythian people, who were uh, European stock in South Ukraine, Russia, in the ancient world, they blinded all their slaves. We also have the tradition of the Amazons that, by the way, uh, bear no resemblance to the uh, Marvel Wonder Woman. Story, the DC <laughs> comic Wonder Woman. Right. Um, they had um, the only, it was a complete, now it, I should all, there's a classic example of myth and history. Uh, for centuries, um, historians taught that that was all just a myth. Even though the Greeks actually said the Amazons existed, it was a female-dominated warrior culture, and uh, they said that for a Amazon to reproduce the woman, she had to first kill a man, and then she would go to the borders a certain time of the year and randomly mate with people that showed up at random, so to speak. Uh, when I discuss this in class, I always say that still happens at the West Virginia-Kentucky border. But it's oh, dear. Insert a joke there. Um, but they killed most of the male offspring that were born um, and, and in the legends. But the men who were kept alive were enslaved. Uh, kind of reverse handmade style, and they disabled them. They cut their ligaments, made their arms and legs weak. So this notion of, and of course you have the Huxley Brave New World, where he has the classes, uh, there's, and then the lowest class, which would be the, lab, the laborers, they're deprived of oxygen during the fetal stage, and it causes mental deficiency, so they become a slave class. Um, and um, this is, again, not an uncommon idea. In the case of the iron workers, though, they would be a especially valuable class, uh, which is this, they're disabled so they can't uh, uh, flee, uh, which reminds me, for the longest time, uh, Venice was famous, the Serene Republic of Venice, as it's called, or Duchy, for their mirrors. And they used to not only give uh, mere craftsmen, noble status. They were not allowed to leave Venice. Uh, eventually, the Flemings and the, Dan- and the uh, Dutch stole the secrets of how the Venetians were able to make these mirrors. Most of your listeners probably don't realize that until recent times, um, ordinary people had really no idea what they looked like because the um, they had these really bizarre, ill-shaped mirrors, and it would distort. It would be like a funhouse mirror. And a mirror in the 17th century was a gift for a queen or a duchess. Uh, they were so finely crafted, and that's why when Louis XIV built the Hall of Mirrors in Versailles, it was really stunning at the time and expensive. 
So right, uh, right. yeah, this idea of disabling your skillful people is is, is widespread. And incidentally, history take a, tends to be we'll take a time out here in, a, in just a moment. But uh, I want to circle back to the, the the formation of the first secret societies. Did uh, and we've got about a minute here, but did most secret societies originate within a sort of a skilled fraternity, whether they were stone cutters or whether they were uh, some sort of a, a like a metalsmith? Is that where most secret societies sprang forth from? Well, in fact, that's what is the modern assumption. After the break, I'll mention how they're prehistorical. Uh, long before there were civilizations, there were secret societies. So I guess All when right. we come back, I'll mention that. Absolutely. We will pick that up on the other side. Mark Mirabello, my guest for the full two hours as we discuss secret societies right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Professor Mark Mirabello is with us for the entire show, for the full two hours, and we're diving deep into secret societies. Before the break, I asked you about the formation of the first secret societies, and my uh, feeling was that, that they had formed out of these fraternities, uh, stonemasons or smiths, uh, and uh, you said that they actually predate that, that they go back to... Before even modern, or before the before civilization, they're prehistoric. Explain what you mean by that. Yes. Uh, by the way, uh, in the West, since the Freemasons are so uh, powerful, I mean, well known, celebrated, it tends to distort the the narrative. Everyone assumes that they're the sort of template for all of this. Uh, in fact, we find among so-called traditional peoples, uh, secret societies, uh, and they're very they, they've been going on for. Who knows how long? Now, I should mention the human race has spent 99 percent, 99 plus percent of its existence as hunters and gatherers. Uh, farming only starts about 10,000 years ago. It's going to dramatically alter the human race where it spreads. Now, the we find a widespread myth, and here I'm plagiarizing the late great Joseph Campbell, a professor. Uh, we find this widespread myth in Aboriginal Australia. And also, for example, in Patagonia, in South America, among other places. And it mentions, uh, and, and by the way, boys learn it during puberty rituals. Uh, little boys, before they become men, and the traditional societies claim that uh, until you go through puberty, you're not a, ma- a man, you're basically with the women and children. And they're told a secret. And the secret is, long, long ago, uh, and it's the same form we find across the globe. Women once dominated through their magic, they controlled death and sickness. And the men conspired against them, and they killed every female above uh, puberty age. So they killed basically everybody under, let's say, 12, 13, whenever puberty occurred in this particular culture. It varies over time. And the reason they killed them at that age is because in the traditions, the women learned magic as part of their puberty rituals. When they had their first menstruation, they were taught the ancient lore 
by the old women. The post-menstrual women taught the young, new women what the uh, power of magic was. And the men, the adult men, tell these boys that they once controlled us, but we killed them, and then we kept the little girls ignorant, so they grew up not realizing their magic, and then to protect our male power, we formed a secret society. They use a different term for it, but that's what they're doing, because we find these, uh, and incidentally, in traditional cultures, and again, I'm going back to Professor Eliade on this, um, they're all, they have female secret societies, but secret societies are predominantly male, overwhelmingly, and they are gender exclusive. Uh, in fact, in our modern non-gender culture, we're trying to integrate everything. It's, it's, it's really going to be a disaster in secret society because you can't, um, <laughs> male, male secret societies are so different than female. For example, back to the Masons, you have the Eastern Star, which is for a female secret society associated with the Masons. The women hold candles, and they wear translucent veils, and they talk about how they will love and support one another. The men, meanwhile, in Freemasonic rituals, it depends on what level you're at, but for example, at the Royal Archmason level, which is quite high, say that if I betray this oath, the top of my head will be sawed off and my brains will be exposed to the sun. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Male secret societies will involve often humiliation, nudity, ordeals, of some often horrific ordeals. Now, again, there are exceptions uh, where you see uh, some female organizations that have some difficult ordeals. But by and large, women don't really... This is really curious because at one level, they've often silently suffered oppression in some cultures, yet in the modern era, if you start doing weird ordeals to women, they're going to basically blow the whistle on you. Uh, right. I don't know if right. it's made the Canadian news, but and I don't, I'm not going to talk about it in my book, but the Nexium movement that was in the United States is supposed to be a female empowerment movement. It's, they're actually the leaders on trial right now in the United States. Uh, it was led by a male and some prominent women, including a woman to the Brothman family, the well-known Seagram Whiskey clan up there. Ah, uh, yes, yes, now I do remember and, the story. Um, she actually turned over and basically cited, you know, said, Plug Gilly and I'll, I'll, I'll cooperate. But uh, the leader, who's a male, they had an inner secret society in the Nexium group, and it involved branding the body of an elite group mm. of women, and they apparently involved some kind of sexual activity. And now the American press and the American federal government's turning this into, uh, like, oh my god, this is a, you know, a horror show. This kind of stuff, branding, nudity, uh, sex, occurs, um, in all kinds of, uh, secret societies. And I think the general public doesn't realize it. In fact, I think the traditional secret society we know is going to, uh, disappear in the West at least because um, um, everything is now uh, you get too many whistleblowers um, people don't want to including the males um, but you know the even the mafia is becoming compromised it's kind of hilarious um, the West has become so corrupt the United States um, corrupted the Sicilian mob they couldn't follow the rules <laughs> the West anymore. Right. The the um, for example of omerta, which is means roughly manhood and silence, 
and you're never supposed to cooperate with the authorities against your blood brothers in the in the mafia. And we have, in the case of the United States, and also now even in Italy, a couple thousand people have turned state's evidence. Um, which, by the way, reminds me of a joke I always use, uh, since I have a last, Italian last name. Whenever anybody asks me what I'm... Because Shawnee State University is a small school in a relatively isolated area, and they'll say, well, how did you come to Shawnee State? And I'll just... I'm joking, of course, but I'll say witness protection program, they'll never find me here. <laughs> uh, <laughs> there you go. I want to go back to, I want to go back to that, the, that, that myth from Aboriginal Australia and also Patagonia, South America. Uh, how do you suppose that got started? I mean, there, often there is a kernel of truth behind these myths. To tell the truth, I suspect what we know about traditional cultures uh, they probably were initially, and that's what sound curious, afraid of women's power um, because it was so magical to them. How does a baby emerge from the womb? Now, uh, uh, another point I should mention is this is kind of shocking to most modern people, and I even notice professors don't seem to even often know this. Um, it was discovered by Malinowski in the late 19th century. He was in Melanesia, which is, of course, Aboriginal Australia is part of Melanesia. And he was stunned to learn that the people there didn't realize that men played a role in reproduction. Uh, traditional cultures tend to be really promiscuous. And they didn't realize that a male uh, having sex with a woman would produce a child. Uh, they just um, thought that somehow this happened, and it was a magical process. And I think that now this again sounds really curious. Like you think, well, how can they figure this out? But if everybody's promiscuous, having sex all the time, um, and uh, they just don't make the connection. Uh, and by the way, in uh, the area in New Guinea where Malinowski was working, they actually didn't even have a word in the language for a father. And um, he noticed that um, uncles bonded with nephews and nieces, but fathers had nothing to do with when they were married to a woman. They had nothing to do with the children. The uncles hmm. were involved with them. And at first this kind of mystified them, and then until he discovered they didn't realize they were related. And they thought the nephews thought they were related to the uncle through the mother, because the mother was the sister of the uncle. So I, I have a feeling this is a true, there's an element of truth in it, that women once dominated at a certain level. Um, and I, it's because of the fear of the supernatural. We tend to think, because we're such a secular culture, that it all comes down to who has the better spear and club is going to dominate. Well, first of all, hunters and gatherers are very egalitarian. They, they have no, there's no tyrant among hunters and gatherers. Uh, they tend to be everybody participates in the decisions, although, again, the older men will tend to sway some of the things. But uh, magic in traditional cultures is often a, a strictly female function. Indeed, uh, in Norse legend, which is quite late, medieval Iceland, Scandinavia, they have these really powerful men, fighters. But when the men want supernatural information, there'll be these tales in the sagas where these powerful men sort of kneel down, sit down around this old woman. And by the way, the older, the better. She'll have long gray hair. She'll sit on some elevated chair. And she will 
throw the runes. These are pieces of wood with writing on them onto the ground and read the future. And there's a sense of uh, power here, which reminds me, too, among the Romans, the Vestal Virgins, who guarded, there's a sacred treasure in ancient Rome called the Palladium. And wherever the Palladium was, that city would never fall. It would, it would rule. And the story was that Aeneas, the legendary connection with Rome, that he was a Trojan, son of Aphrodite, he fled Troy when it fell and carried the Palladium to Italy. And it was guarded by the Vestral Virgins, who, and by the way, you may say, well, why did Troy fall if they had the Palladium? Well, in the story, uh, a couple of Greeks, Odysseus and Diomedes, stole the Palladium. And that's how, but of course, Aeneas ah. stole it back. And then it goes to, we have to Mark, sorry, we and, have to take a time out here. We've got to, we, we've got to run to a break here. We'll come back and pick that up. But I want to get back to the Masons if we can. Mark Mirabello, my guest. We're discussing secret societies right here on The Conspiracy Show. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And welcome back. And we are privileged to have Professor Mark Mirabello with us for the full two hours uh, delving into secret societies, the origin of secret societies, the nine different types, as we'll uh, discuss as well. Uh, now, the Masons, how did they how did they begin and when? Well, and by the way, sorry, Ken, I tend to go off on script and keep going on and on, so I'll try to give it tighter. Now, the, there's the official history, and then there's the legendary history. Um, in some traditions, they go back to Hiram and the construction of the Temple of Solomon uh, uh, several centuries before the time of Christ. Uh, historians tend to think that the official ma- that the Masons only begin either in the uh, 18th century, around 1720s, to perhaps as early as the 17th century. And and what was the purpose uh, of of forming? I mean, it's one thing to have a fraternity of of skilled workers, like you know the local union and so forth. But but then why the why the secrecy? Why the secret handshakes? Why the oaths? Well, in fact, um, frankly, most secret societies are kind of misunderstood. They're they're fundamentally about power, and um, uh, and this power works through what's called within-group altruism. For example, if I'm going to a job interview and I'm a Freemason, the handshake I give the interviewer, also the way I stand in the room, how my feet are positioned, also various gestures I make with my hands and various words I use can indicate to the interviewer that I'm a Freemason, a fellow brother. And in the oaths they swear, uh, you must prefer a Freemason, a brother, above others. So if two people equally qualified, they say equally, but almost certainly even an unqualified person will get the job in some respects. If you see a Freemason is one of the candidates and a um, non-Freemason is applying, you'll give it to the Freemason. Um, And again, not to go on, but this even works in trials. Um, a defendant can actually flash a Freemasonic gesture 
hoping that there's a Freemason on the jury or a Freemason that's the prosecuting attorney or the judge. And um, you're supposed to vote in his favor. Now, in the first three levels, um, you're, they exempt murder and treason. So if a person's on trial for murder and he flashes, for example, there's the, uh, uh, there's a sign of distress, which is given with the hands, um, they say, well, if he's a murderer, you don't have to support him. But in upper levels, such as royal arch masonry, you're supposed to support him in everything, including murder. That's, again, not well known, and they don't talk about it, but it's a brotherhood. There's a within-group altruism, and uh, right. that's the key to success. And the the idea that, that Masons, when they take these oaths and so forth, they're actually they're, they're praying to Lucifer. Uh, is that is that true, or is that mere is that mere uh, legend? Well, in fact, that comes back to Albert Pike, who was now yes. a Confederate officer. Uh, he was also a prominent scholar of Freemasonry in the 19th century. Uh, and for the record, this is how Freemasonry works. Recently, in the United States, we've had literally mobs tearing down Confederate statues. Mm-hmm. When a mob went after Albert Pike's statue, which is in Washington, he's the only Confederate leader with a statue in Washington, D.C., because they lost the war. All right. the other Confederate statues were in the South. The mob went after it, but the statue's still there, and suddenly it disappeared from the news. Uh, the New York Times covered that there were people demanding the removal of Albert Pike's statue, but um, what happened was he's a Freemason, and Freemasons squelched it. Um, again, you, you defend your brother at all costs. Uh, people don't realize Santa Ana, who was the president of Mexico during the Texas Revolution when Texas seceded, he was a Freemason, and he gave to Sam Houston the Freemasonic uh, sign of distress. That's why he wasn't killed. Uh, the Mexicans had massacred, had killed POWs among the Texans, because they were viewed as rebels and traitors. They were revolting from Mexico's authority. But uh, Santa Ana, his life was spared. And again, this is how it works. It's, uh, it's power. And if you are in these groups, they will protect you. And they also will foster your career. Right. I mean, that it was almost like, you know, as, you, as you're trying to get on your feet, get a career going, it was like, you know, you, you needed to become a member of the Chamber of Commerce. But if you wanted to become, get into the fire department, into the police department, you had to become a Mason. What about this idea that the United States itself is a Masonic plot and Washington DC is, is in fact laid out in a, in the shape of a Masonic compass? Well, by the way, uh, it occurs to me I'm doing this quite a bit. I didn't really answer your Lucifer question. Uh, there is a reference in Pike's writing to that the Masons are dedicated to the Lord of Light. See, that's what Lucifer means. Uh, but the trouble is, it gets confused because um, a lot of pagan ideas have been flipped. What used to be good now becomes evil. And so Lucifer is originally a symbol of knowledge and illumination. And, of course, Lucifer also is involved in the legendary, well, actually the real, Illuminati in the uh, 18th century. And the Illuminati yes. are allegedly connected with the Freemasons. They were within it like a parasite. And then going back to your question, 
the number of Freemasons among the so-called founding fathers uh, was quite substantial. There's controversies over uh, which people were the Freemasons and who joined later, but there's no doubt that the rebellion was um, hatched, if you will, in lodges. Um, that uh, meeting secretly. Now, once again, we're running into the problem with airbrushed history. Because the Founding Fathers won, they're depicted as these really wise, enlightened characters. But at the time, uh, in fact, no minister of significance in America was 99% Protestant at the time, so I'll just use the term minister, supported the revolution. Because Paul says very clearly that you must support the established powers. Also, I've got to jump in here again, Mark. Pardon the interruption. We'll take a quick time out, come back and pick up on the Founding Fathers and the Masons. Mark Mirabello talking secret societies right here on The Conspiracy Show. Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusion. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrant. And welcome back. Mark Mirabella was with us. We're talking secret societies. Before the break, we were talking about the founding fathers and how many of them were Masons and whether, in fact, the formation of the United States was a Masonic plot. And you were talking about uh, how the vast majority of, was it ministers, did not support the revolution because, according to the edicts of, I guess, St. Paul, you know, it sort of when in Rome, not when in Rome, but render unto Caesar, right? That kind of idea? Yes, and of course, St. Augustine talks about the kingdom of heaven is in the sky. We don't worry about what's going on here on earth very much. Now, I should also mention that we also, earlier, we mentioned Lucifer, Lord of Light. Um, the revolution comes out of the 18th century, Age of Reason, which was tended to disparage religion, uh, and traditional thought. And the, it seems as if what the early Freemasons, and they still involved in this, they're talking about declaring war, if you will, on kings and altars. There's a secular aspect to Freemasonry that's often minimized today because they will take an oath to be a member of most lodges. You have to be a, a, not an atheist, but that could just be a cover story. Keep in mind there's often uh, everything in, in secret societies and conspiracy theories, there's a plausible deniability. You can't always take things at face value. And the first rebel in history is, is Satan, who rebels in the Christian legend. He tries to take over heaven and is cast out with one-third of the angels. So uh, the idea is that in the 18th century, the ministers were thinking these rebels against the king are parallel, uh, on a parallel line with Satan. This is why they were opposed to it. Um, hmm. So um, uh, it clearly is uh, demonic work in their mind. And the idea uh, that I Washington don't... is laid out, Washington D.C. is laid out uh, to resemble a Masonic compass. Yes, and in fact, uh, that's true. A French architect was planning the city, and you can see it all over the place. In fact, there's even more to it that's rather peculiar. Uh, a lot of it built later. Uh, people don't realize that the Washington Monument is actually an obelisk, which is from ancient Egypt type of structure, and that's a male fertility symbol. When the Egyptians defeated an enemy in battle, they would actually construct a model, if you will, of the female genitals, indicating these are the people we defeated, 
and the obelisk indicated we're manly. And by the way, the Egyptians typically castrated defeated enemies, just like they were taking scalps on the frontier in America. Uh, they used to take genitals. Um, hmm. So there, there's Freemasonic stuff all over the place. Washington, of course, is a famous portrait where he's dressed in Freemasonic regalia. Now, I should also make clear, again, this is, I think, not really widely understood what goes on. In the case of England, there's over 600,000 Freemasons. And for most of them, it's simply a social group. It helps them in business. It helps them make uh, economic ties. It's an opportunity to basically men to uh, network. But there are 30 upper levels. Now, to enter the lower levels, no Freemason will ever ask an outsider to join if he's following the rules. And an outsider has to ask a Freemason three times on three separate occasions. Now, the reason for the three, it appears endlessly in Freemasonic lore. The three ruffians, the three wounds. Um, so he must ask an, uh, a Freemason three separate occasions um, to join the Freemasons. Now, incidentally, um, the first two times, the Freemason won't even re reply. He'll divert the conversation. Now, after three, if he's considered a worthy brother, the person may then be recommended that you need essentially two supporters, and then the lodge votes on the member, and in fact, it's a um, private, it's a secret ballot. Sorry. Right, uh, okay. It's a secret ballot, and they cast white or black balls. That's where our expression "black balled" comes from. Ah. By the way, there's a, there's a number of expressions we use that come from Freemasonry. On the level is a Freemasonic mm -hmm. term. Black balled is a Freemasonic term, and there's a million of them. We're using in common. Uh, eavesdropper is someone who spies on the lodge. Um, uh, we're commonly now a first name that's becoming common in America and probably Canada is Tyler. That's a Freemasonic term. It's a person who guards the meeting. Um, now, uh, and a, a square deal, that's a Freemasonic term as well. Now, if the person gets unanimous support among the lodge members, he's in and he goes to the initiation. Now, here's the part that was the important part. Um, to go to the upper level, you have to be invited. You, there's nothing you can do. Now, there's three lower levels, one, two, three. But there's nothing you can do to get into the upper levels. They have to invite you to join. And it becomes really elite. And by the 33rd degree, in the case of England, there's only 75 members. And, in fact, you can actually go in the 33rd degree. You can actually walk around St. James Square area of London, and there'll be this really kind of impressive building, which is the supreme headquarters of these upper levels, and it has this really kind of plain sign and says, uh, Supreme Consul, ring once. <laughs> I remember ah. sitting there looking at it as a graduate student. Now, here's the point about all this stuff. This is what causes, and again, I'm not attacking the Freemasons. That's not my point here. I just study what they is done. You have to be, to be invited, you have to be a kind of a team player. They don't want mavericks. They don't want troublemakers. They don't want whistleblowers. But if you're getting up to that top level, you're going to be guaranteed some really significant success. 
Um, and uh, so what I'm trying to say is the ordinary Freemason on the street is really unaware of most of this. Right, and right. And so what are they doing at that social. upper level? I mean, they're not playing canasta, for crying out loud. What are they doing? It's actually kind of curious. Uh, it's unclear what goes on. Uh, the building has all kinds of mysterious rooms in it. And uh, I think, again, it basically comes down to power. Um, I first got interested in secret societies when I was at the University of Glasgow because I, I noticed that everyone who was really important was a Freemason. Um, and, for example, the ordinary cop, uh, Bobby, on the street may not be, but I'll guarantee you the police commissioner, the equivalent in London, is. And um, so, uh, and by the way, I recommend to your audience, there's this film that's no longer even available, Abby, but you can find it on YouTube and so forth. Glenn Ford started it called The Brotherhood of the Bell. Yes. And it really demonstrates how... Um, it's 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 apparently based on the uh, skull and bones, but it's, it demonstrates how it works. Um, Glenn Ford plays this character who joins this organization in college, and everything he does, he succeeds. Every book he writes, he's, he becomes a psychology professor. Every book he writes is published and just praised to no end. Every promotion he seeks, he gets it. Every uh, when he wants a tenure, he gets that. And then he's in his middle age, and he's asked to vote against a certain candidate for tenure. And he's explained to him. They tell him, "You real? You think you've achieved all of this on your own? It's the Brotherhood has helped you, and now you have to do something for us." And what he does is he turns on him because after he votes the guy down, the man commits suicide, which is a bit much. But he commits suicide. And then he tries to oust them, uh, out them. And that's what the interesting part of the film, because when he tries to blow the whistle, they make him look crazy. Um, and they all laugh at him. And that's what we tend to use, uh, denial and ridicule. Uh, there's that's a right, ostracized. That, uh, and and one, one fellow once suggested there's no such thing as paranoia. It's been invented by the powers to discredit anyone who tries to uh, uh, blow the whistle, if you will. Well, much the same as the word conspiracy theory was supposedly coined by the CIA and FBI to discredit JFK assassination, uh, well, those who would debunk the uh, the Warren report. Anyway, we'll uh, take a, a time out here, top of the hour. We'll come back, hour two awaits, much to discuss, phone calls as well. Mark Mirabello, Secret Societies, here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Thank you.